0: We are back this week continuing our Lenten series that we are calling Lessons from the Carpenter. I know that a lot of you were here last week for worship last Sunday. We kind of paused the series, but oh my gosh, I think it was so worth it because we let our youth program come in and take over our worship service as they wrapped up Discovery Weekend which is a middle school retreat that our high schoolers lead. So our youth praise band led worship. Reagan, our youth pastor, preached. Our students were up here serving communion. They were all sitting on the front row, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing for this week. I don't know. But it was, it was so much fun. I would really encourage you that if you missed it last week to at least go back on the live stream from last week on our YouTube channel and just look at how vibrant and full of life our youth ministry is, because I'd really love for all of you to see that. If you've been hanging with us through Lent, then you know kind of what the premise is for this series that we're kind of back on this week. It's been pushing us to look at Jesus through the lens of his trade, through the lens of the job that he worked when he walked the earth, right? We remember that his father Joseph was a tekton, which is the Greek word for builder or carpenter which would have made Jesus a carpenter as well, likely practicing his trade for almost 15 years before he went into the public ministry at around age 30. The first two weeks of this series, we really focused on how Jesus treated other people as a result of his trade. We talked a lot about how wood was a scarce resource in the first century. So a carpenter would have had to have been willing to use the scraps, to use every little piece of wood that he or she had laying around their woodshop to either make repairs or to build new things, because lumber was just really hard to find. And how we can see pretty clearly that that led Jesus to have a really keen eye for seeing value and purpose in people, that others only saw as the scraps of the world, right? It makes sense when we realize how Jesus may have had to use wood and then we look at who he called and how he called and who he ate with and who he propped up and forced other people to see with worth and with value and with dignity. For the next two weeks, we're going to kind of pivot away from that angle and we're going to begin to look a little bit At the teachings of Jesus. And perhaps how we can see that lens of a carpenter begin to emerge, not just with how Jesus treated others, but how he actually teaches us. How he encourages us to live as his faithful followers. So my hope is that over these next two weeks leading up to Palm Sunday and leading up to Easter, is that we wouldn't just hear the voice of our Messiah, but that we would also maybe hear the voice of a carpenter. We're going to start this week as we look at a teaching from Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 14. It's verses 25 through 33. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down and first consider Whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together. It's a tough passage, right? I think Jesus is trying to get us to ask one question when we hear this teaching, when we read this teaching. How much does it cost? This is a question that a first century carpenter would have literally made their livelihood answering. I mean, you can almost picture it, right? Someone comes into Jesus's shop or stops him on the street. I need a new yoke for my oxen. I need you to come and repair my table. I need you to fix this chair. I need a new front door. I need some repairs on my roof. I need a new table. I need this hole in the floor of my boat fixed so that it will stop taking on water. How much will it cost? A carpenter would have had to know the value of their work. The material that they would need to complete The job, the time that it would take them to do it, right? What they wouldn't be able to do because they were working on this thing that you had asked them to do instead. How busy they were. All of those things, and I'm sure much, much more would factor into just how much it might cost for Jesus to do maybe a very simple job. And the buyer would have to wrestle with the question, is it worth it? Is the cost that I am being asked to pay worth the product that I am hoping or that I will receive? And I can almost picture Jesus talking to a client saying, I know that my price might be a little bit higher, but it's worth it. Because my tables or my doors or my boats are built to last. I think this is something that we wrestle with every day in our lives, this tension of cost versus worth some of you may already know this i know that some of you already know this but a few weeks ago unbeknownst to me madison and i actually became landlords we discovered that there was a small colony of bats living in our attic which is just truly exhilarating stuff right it's what you dream of right that's what you wake up and want to deal with on a monday morning and i've learned a whole lot about bats in the last couple of weeks One of the things that I've learned is that they are endangered, that there is no species of bat flying around Alabama that is not considered an endangered species, which means that you can't just kick them out of your house, however you want to kick them out of your house, that you have to let them gently leave and then simply make a repair so that they can't get back in. I also learned that most pest control companies don't handle bats because bats aren't considered pests. They're considered wildlife. So you have very few options with who you can have come in and perform this very delicate service for you. All of that to say, it costs a pretty penny to have somebody come into your home, get the bats out Of your attic and then get back up into your attic once the bats are gone and clean up all of the bat poop that they left behind and disinfect all of the viruses that I learned bats carry and and all that right I mean they got to get back up and clean it all up then they have to put some sort of mesh on the outside of your house to hopefully ensure that the bats aren't gonna make it back in it's not cheap I'm not gonna tell you how much it costs but you can imagine right I'm sure It wasn't a fun price tag to look at. But you know what? I think it's worth it. I mean, I do. I don't want to get up in the attic and clean up that poop. I mean, I really don't. It may cost a lot, but it's worth it. We wrestle with this question every day, don't we? It may cost something, but is it worth it? One of Madison, my wife, one of her favorite things in the whole world is O. Henry's Christmas Blend Coffee. Any other Christmas Blend coffee lovers out there? Yeah, there's a few, right? They only release it from like November to January, and it is a must in our house during that time, right? Like it is a staple. We have to have it. It is not up for discussion. And don't get me wrong, right? I think it's good, but she thinks it is amazing, right? Am I lying? I mean, you think it is amazing. She loves everything about it. She would drink it year-round if she could, right? I mean, she loves the smell. She loves the taste. She loves the hint of hazelnut that they put in there. I mean, she loves everything about it. And it costs more than the coffee beans that we normally buy. But for the sake of my marriage, (laughs) I will stand up here and tell you that those Christmas coffee beans from O'Henry they're worth it my guess is that it could be double what we normally pay for coffee and that madison would still think that it was worth it everything has a cost right everything has a cost some things cost more than others the question really is not how much does it cost but rather is it worth what you have to pay Jesus, at this time in His ministry, as the Scripture told us right at the very beginning, is being followed by large crowds of people, which makes sense. He's been preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles, and it is no surprise that in response to all of these signs and wonders, that crowds have begun to follow Jesus not just figuratively, but, but literally are walking with him from town to town, dropping whatever it is they have going on in their life to follow this man. But we know that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is not just wandering around the Galilean hillside teaching and performing miracles. He is actually going somewhere. He, he's, he's on his way to a destination. We just read from Luke chapter 14, but in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says that he is formally setting his face to Jerusalem. So we know that Jesus throughout this journey now is inching his way closer and closer to Jerusalem, just like we are during this season of Lent, that Jesus is actually making his way to the cross and he's getting closer. It's in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the holy city. And Jesus the carpenter, as he has countless times before, seems to be trying to make it clear to the crowds that they know that this decision to follow him is going to cost them something. It's going to cost them a lot, actually, if you were paying attention to the scripture that we read. The first thing that Jesus says is that in order to be his disciple, you have to hate your family, which is a little jarring, isn't it? It's tempting as a preacher to not read that verse and to just start preaching and start reading from the verse that comes directly after it. But I think it's important for us to read it and realize that it's important for us to read it the right way. Because the kind of hate that Jesus is talking about here is not an emotion. It's more of an attitude or a perspective. I rarely try to pull you into the Greek because I think that can be really distracting and really hard to keep up with. But here in this moment, it's really important for us to do that because I don't think this word is being translated the best that it could be in this situation. I don't think it really reflects what Jesus is actually saying here. It's moments like this when we have to remember that the Greek vocabulary that Luke was using when he was writing down his account of Jesus' life and ministry, that it had relatively few words in it. So most of the words that Luke is using have three or four or five different meanings that they can carry depending on how they are used. So the Greek word here, miss you, it can be translated as Hate. But it also means to disregard, it means to be indifferent to, or it means to love one thing less than something else. I don't think Jesus here is asking us or expecting us to hate our family. I really think that that would contradict a whole lot of other teachings that we find coming from the lips of Jesus. But I do think Jesus is asking us to do something that is very, very difficult for us to do. To compare the devotion that we would normally hold sacred for family members and for close friends and the devotion that is required of us to truly be one of his disciples. It seems to me that Jesus here is saying love me more than you would even love your family as important as that is to you. Or that in order to truly be my disciple, you're going to have to be willing to love me more than whatever it is that holds first place in your life right now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to soften what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's mincing words here. Following Jesus is going to cost us. And he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to say that whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We have to remember that at this point, those listening in the crowd would not have known how this calling to bear our own cross would be connected to Jesus' own crucifixion, right? So to them, taking up a cross, taking up their own cross, was just a general expression of accepting the burden of suffering. A suffering that it seems would surely end in death. And so Jesus is asking this crowd, and I think he's asking us, if we are going to be willing to stay loyal to him through certain suffering, all the way until... The end again, look, there's no way around it. What Jesus is trying to get us to see here is that following him is going to cost us something. And I kind of imagine Jesus looking at the crowd at this point in his teaching and seeing a whole bunch of somber faces. And so he does what he always did when his words became a little bit too difficult for folks to hear. He turns to parables to try and illustrate. In this case, trying to illustrate why counting the cost, why realizing what following Jesus may actually cost us is so important for us to do if we want to truly be one of his disciples. So he says this, if you were going to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and figure out if you could afford it? Because you wouldn't want to become a laughing stock to the whole town because you failed to plan your project well. And if you were a king who was charging into battle, wouldn't you first sit down and try and figure out if you thought that your army was actually strong enough to defeat the enemy that you were picking a fight with? Because if you did it before the battle even started, you'd be waving your white flag and you would look like someone who was a complete idiot. The parables to me are as straightforward as they could possibly be. Jesus is trying to make sure the crowds who were following them, that that they actually know what it is they are getting themselves into. And that you shouldn't start building a tower unless you plan on finishing it. Otherwise, you're a laughingstock, as only a carpenter can say, right? And that you don't lead a kingdom into battle unless you intend to and believe that you can actually win. Otherwise, it's a waste of everybody's time and everybody's life. Likewise... You shouldn't follow me unless you want your life to be completely changed forever. Again, this is going to cost you. And Jesus still isn't finished. He ends with this. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. You have to be willing, Jesus says again, but in a different way to put me above everything that matters most to you in your life. Whether it's family or good standing in the community or the stuff that you own, you have to be willing to put me above all of it. And this is a hard text for us to read because it doesn't seem like Jesus leaves us very much wiggle room, does he? And I think part of the struggle for us this morning is just to simply own it. That the cost of following Jesus, of truly being one of his disciples, of being willing to put him first above anything else in our life, that it's going to cost us. And it's going to mean that we put everything else behind him. The question that we're left with is the same question that was asked of Jesus when offering a quote for a table or a door. Or a yoke, is it worth it? He forces us to see the cost, doesn't he? As blatantly and as straightforward as he possibly can, right? It's impossible for us to read this teaching from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and not realize what a life as a disciple of his could and will cost us. We know the cost. The question is, is it worth it? And I believe that Jesus gives us the same answer today that he did 2,000 years ago when asked if his carpentry was worth it. Of course it is, right? Of course it's worth the cost. This is a hard teaching from Jesus. I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of teachings that we receive from Jesus are difficult if we allow them to speak to us in ways that are difficult. This passage forces us to realize that if it hasn't already, following Jesus is going to cost us something. It's going to require us to sacrifice and to forgive and to love and to turn the other cheek and to give of ourselves and to die to self, as Paul likes to put it. That we're going to be asked to pray for people who persecute against us. It's going to cost us our pride and our ego. It's probably going to cost us a little bit of money. The reality for us is that there's no way for us to sort of or kind of take up our own cross. This isn't something that we can be half in and half out if we want to truly be a disciple of Christ. But every time, every single time, it is so worth it. Because we receive in return more than we could ever afford. In return, we receive a peace that's going to abide with us always. In return, we're suddenly able to live a life that is penetrated by the love of God. In return, we receive a grace that we couldn't have earned in the first place, a forgiveness that we don't deserve. We receive a hope that holds us, that is firmer than anything else in this world that we could possibly count on to hold us and to support us. In return, we're given the opportunity for, for new life We're offered the chance for abundant life here and now. The more that I thought about it, the more that I realized that in all my years in the church, I have never, ever encountered someone who regretted giving their all to Christ. I've never met anyone who towards the end of their life, the end of their race, the end of their journey here on earth, who looked at me and said, you know what? I wish I hadn't have been as willing to love my neighbor or or to forgive. Or I wish that I would have held on just just a little bit tighter to my pride and to my ego that, you know what? This whole following Jesus thing, it really just wasn't worth the cost that I had to pay. I really regret when I decided to take up my own cross. I've never heard that. And what that tells me is that a life in Christ must be worth the cost. It must be. It must be worth it. And I think that is because of the redemption and the renewal and the new life that we receive, that those things are more than we could ever afford in the first place. We get in return things that we don't deserve and things that we could never do anything to deserve. This is a hard teaching. It forces us to see that following this carpenter, following this Messiah, that it is going to cost us. But friends, it is so worth it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.